0: Go anywhere in the world and you will find a dumpling. And that is loosely defined as a sweet or savory morsel encased in dough and then steamed, fried, or baked. You're probably imagining your favorite dumpling right now, but does that picture change when we talk about American dumpling dishes? As We Eat is embarking on a three part series exploring dumplings. And this is part three of Dumplings in the United States.
1: share some fun facts, and some that aren't so fun, talk about food history, and how food connects and defines us.
0: So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hey, Kim, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I got to go to the Washington State Fair yesterday, and I ate all the food. We just decided to admit to each other that we were going to the fair just to eat fair food. So I have all kinds of photos and I'm planning on writing up my experiences for the As We Eat Journal. We had burgers and elote and elephant ears. So you can read all about it on the As We Eat Journal. But how are you?
1: I am doing pretty good. We're still in Montana and probably will be here for a little while longer. Had a little bit of a scare this morning with my daughter and my
0: grandson,
1: but I think everything's okay. I'm monitoring the phone. If I don't answer Kim's question quickly, it might be because I'm responding to a text.
0: Yeah. And I'm sure I can speak for all of us that our our hearts and thoughts and prayers are going out to you and your family, making sure y'all are safe, happy, sound, and well. Oh, thank you so much. Of course. We're family. We are. We're a big family. So, here we go with our final installment on dumplings. And this has been such a fascinating mm. process for me because this is a type of food I don't think I really thought about before. So, it's been a lot of fun exploring different dumplings from around the world. And now we're, of course, home territory back in the United States. And it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway that the concept of American cuisine is a really large topic. The idea that the United States is a melting pot seems to have fallen out of fashion. The reality is that any national food identity that we have is formed by both its indigenous people, ingredients, techniques, and technologies, as well as the traditions, cuisines, cultures brought to the United States by its immigrants. According to my trusty Oxford Companion to Food... The concept of the dumpling really correlates strongly to a desire to extend meat and vegetables. After all, dough readily takes on the flavors of the foods in which it is cooked, while also imparting some thickening properties or just adding a satisfactory contrasting texture. Plenty of stories abound about economical stews and soups originating from either the American Civil War or its Great Depression era as a thrifty way to maximize nutrition. And those may truly be moments in American history when these dishes had their heyday, but really meat stews cooked with or in dough are not even remotely unique to the United States. Whether or not these tiny limbs of dough were specifically called dumplings, they've made numerous appearances in American cookbooks since the early 18th century, with recipes appearing in Mary Randolph's 1836 The Virginia Housewife, Lettice Bryan's 1839 The Kentucky Housewife, Sarah Rutledge's 1847 Carolina Housewife, or Marion Cabell Tyree's 1879 Housekeeping in Old Virginia. In that one, a recipe for stewed chicken called for simmering with dumplings made like biscuits, but rolled thin. And let's not forget that establishing a term or a recipe in print does not necessarily mean that some version of the dish was already existent in kitchens and homes where that food knowledge was maybe an oral tradition or just not committed to writing and publication. And that's an idea we're going to talk about a little bit further in our next season. And this discrepancy is evident in the multitude of dumplings that we enjoy. But time and tradition pair rather curiously with each other. And dumplings have found a very unique expression in our food culture as either fluffy and slick dumplings. Lei, what can you tell me about fluffy dumplings? Oh,
1: I can tell you they're my favorites. And there were so many things in here that you talked about that I found when I was researching the dumplings too. But you know, most often when we hear dumplings, especially here in the States, we think of an iconic dish, chicken and dumplings. And it's a dish, as you mentioned, of stewed chicken with dumplings floating in a velvety broth. Now, the type of dumplings in these recipes varies, and I'll get to that in a minute. But one of the things that you did talk about was this extending of a meat or a dish to make it more thrifty. One of the things that you will hear and read when we're talking about chicken and dumplings is that thrifty cooks invented this dish during the Great Depression, And as you mentioned, these dishes are much older than the Great Depression. So friends, this is a total food fallacy. The recipes for chicken and dumplings appear in many U.S. cookbooks decades before the stock market crashed. Now, there are generally two types of dumplings that are called for in chicken and dumplings. One is the drop or the fluffy dumpling, and the other one is a slick dumpling, as Kim mentioned. Now, the slick dumplings are more like a noodle. And the drop or fluffy dumplings are more like a biscuit that's been steamed in the broth. If you listen to episode 49, you will know that I mentioned a dumpling called a floater, which was popular in England as early as the 1600s. These dumplings consist of flour, suet, salt, and water, sometimes herbs and leaveners. So it's likely that there is some English influence on our fluffy dumplings. Now, this is a generalization, and I realize this, but fluffy dumplings are actually most associated with the northern states. Based on recipes in cookbooks that you've mentioned, the Virginia housewife, the Kentucky housewife, housekeeping in old Virginia, and cookbook and useful household hints, we can start to see an evolution in American dumplings, and more importantly, a point at which the great dumpling divergence happened. Hint, it happened after a big divergence in the U.S. happened, the Civil War. In Housekeeping in Old Virginia, which was published in 1879, Marion Cable Tyree's recipe for stewed chicken includes a slow-simmered chicken in which dumplings are made like a biscuit and rolled thin. And then they're added to the broth, and you mentioned this earlier. Now, in sharp contrast, Mrs. Owen's cookbook and useful household hints published in Chicago in 1884 for chicken pot pie, not like our chicken pot pies today, calls for small lumps of dough made like biscuit to be dropped in the pot. Now, by the late 19th century, this type of chicken and dumpling recipe, often called chicken pot pie, seemed fairly entrenched in northern cuisine. The dumplings were steamed rather than boiled in the water. The northern chicken and dumplings typically had carrots, celery, and parsley in the recipe, where the southern chicken and dumplings generally didn't. In the south, however, the noodle-like dumplings took hold. Some publications, like the Public Ledger of Oxford, North Carolina, coined the title chicken and pastry, when it observed that stewed chicken and pastry were a part of the menu on some tables, which is always a favorite dish, while other publications use the term slicks or slickers for the slippery noodle-like dumplings. And Kim, I think that the two of us actually diverge at this point when it comes to chicken and dumplings. My preferences, as I have mentioned, are the drop or the fluffy
0: dumplings, and I think yours are slicks. Absolutely. For my part, I love a slick dumpling. And ironically, I have no real reason to love it other than my personal preference for the texture. To me, it is the ultimate expression of an American dumpling, the kind found to me in a chicken and dumpling stew. And this type of dumpling is, as as we know and as we've already said, best described as flat, dense, chewy and is known in recipes as flats, slicks, rolled dumplings, or slide downs. And unlike their fluffy counterparts, which to me can resemble a waterlogged biscuit after it's been cooked, slicks seem to be largely preferred south of the former Mason-Dixon line, maybe merely on principle because drop biscuits are, air quote, what people from the north do. (laughs) And maybe it's my early years spent living in North Carolina, but I find that dogged determination to differentiate a Southern biscuit from a dumpling to be really satisfying because this is specific context from which the definitions in a food culture are based. You know, like a biscuit is made for biscuit things like biscuit and gravy and dumplings are dumpling things for like chicken and dumplings. And you would never, ever confuse the two like you possibly could with a fluffy drop dumpling. If you have a paid subscription to our As We Eat Journal on Substack, and I highly recommend it, then you may have already read a little about my family's travels through Pennsylvania and my discovery of Amish and Pennsylvania Dutch foods. I loved eating at Amish restaurants in no small part because the food was largely a polar opposite to the California style cuisine that I was eating at home. It's more rich. Rib sticking, has that truer comfort food kind of thing to it. And there was always one dish in particular that has really set my standard for what a chicken and dumpling dish is. And that is what is affectionately known as bot boy or vernacularly called Amish chicken pot pie. Like you said originally, and let's be clear here that despite it being called a pot pie, it absolutely does not resemble the mainstream meat pot pies with crusts. Something akin to coffin pies, which I believe we talked about in our original pie episode in November of 2020. But I digress, of course. Bot boy is maybe better described as a thickened super stew containing chicken stock, assorted vegetables, although onion, carrots, and celery are exceptionally common, as you've also mentioned already. But this includes thick cut squares of egg enriched dough that are cooked in the broth. But here's the curious thing that I found researching flat dumplings. I had a really hard time locating any compelling reason for flats versus fluffies other than personal preference. I think I must have read about a dozen recipes <laughs> for capital letter, the best slick dumplings, and nearly all of them attribute their recipe to grandma, mima, ma me nana, or any other name for an elderly female relative. All the how was there, I just simply couldn't find a why. Now, a friend of mine who grew up in the South told me that what he was taught was that economic sanctions against the South during the Civil War were a leading factor towards flat dumplings because quite literally the food needed to stretch. I love this idea, but it seems to me to be a very tall tale because in reality, chicken, especially a young spring chicken, is a hard-working egg producer. And while there does come a moment in a chicken's life when its laying eggs are done It's not as if it was always a steady supply of chickens just on tap for soups and stews. And in times of poverty and economic strife, chicken soup would be an absolute luxury and never a thrifty meal. So maybe the answer, if we can find one, is that really the difference between fluffy and slick dumplings is just really coming down to a matter of personal preference for texture, mouthfeel, and how you feel during and after eating. Uh, a certain charge could be leveled that slick dumplings are heavy and thick, and they certainly are more so than their fluffy counterparts. After all, I'm not turning to a plate of chicken and dumplings or even pork and sauerkraut and dumplings because I'm winning something light. But chances are greater that I've just walked through an apple orchard and the crisp turning of fall and the autumn colors are inspiring me into something that evokes feelings of warmth, coziness and comfort. So finally... Part of me wonders whether the monetization of food and cooking blogs has actually turned the personal narrative form of food writing into a tiny bit of a cliche. The stereotypical, I was walking through a meadow of pure sunlight and I decided to whip up a batch of vanilla strawberry kiss cupcakes for my kids' playdate. Or if it points towards a more definitive return to a traditional heritage style recipe as a part of a greater organic desire for authenticity. In short, what I'm saying is I think that people are kind of coming back to these recipes because they're looking for a way to reconnect to the past. And so it's without question that they're doing what grandma used to do, sometimes with some variation, but really it's a wholesale just acceptance of this is how we've made this dish. This is always how we've made this dish. And this will always be how we make this dish. I really wish I could be here in two generations and do my best to do so. To see if that's how we're still talking about dishes like chicken and dumplings. Are we still talking about this is the way that grandma, and grandma being us, used to make it? Or are we moving on to something else? And are we actually having any kind of critical perspective or challenge to this is the way we've always done it? Why? Why are we doing it this way? I don't really know the answer but I'm finding myself consumed with that unspoken question of why are we making the choices we're making in regards to our food and how we're preparing them, obviously, specifically in context of flat or fluffy dumplings. I don't know, Lay. what do you think? I think that it's a really interesting question. And the whole, this is the way
1: that me mom made that, this is the way that my grandmother made it, granny, or my mom, or my grandpa, or my uncle, whoever that person who carried that forward was. Now, one of the other dumplings that's very American is the apple dumpling. The only apple dumplings that I have ever seen are baked. It's more like a pie or a galette. I couldn't figure out why it was called an apple dumpling because it doesn't coalesce with what we've been talking about as dumplings. When I was doing my research on this, I ran across a YouTube channel, The Townsends, which if you guys haven't watched this YouTube channel, it's all about historical Food cooking. It's a fabulous YouTube channel,
0: but. Oh, that's amazing. It's really
1: great. <laughs> but he made an apple dumpling from a 19th century cookbook and compared it to what his mother has made his whole life which again is more like the pie or the galette or the hand pie or the empanada. I actually found several apple dumpling recipes in the cookbooks that we've talked about. Previously, both Kim and I mentioned the Kentucky Housewife cookbook, and I actually found a recipe for apple dumplings in this cookbook, and I I would like to read it to you guys. Roll out a large sheet of suet, potato, or common pie paste, tolerably thick, and cut it up in circular pieces sufficiently large to cover an apple. Pear and core without cutting to pieces some well-flavored cooking apples. Fill the space once you extract the cores with brown sugar and squeeze on each a little lemon juice. Put one apple in each piece of paste, closing it securely and smoothly round the apple on one side. Dust them thickly with flour, put them in a boiling pot of water, and boil them steadily till done, which you may tell by piercing one with a fork. When they're done, serve them warm in a covered dish and accompany them with cream or cold sweet sauce. This recipe helped me understand why they're called apple dumplings. This cooking process is much like the process for gyoza, for raviolis, for slicks. Absolutely. And they are, as Kim mentioned in the opening, a sweet morsel encased in dough and boiled. So going back to the Townsend's video where he did compare these two, because he has one that his mother made for him that he asks for for all of his birthdays. And then he did this recipe. He actually used a recipe from Hannah Glass's cookbook, which we have talked Mm -hmm. about extensively on the podcast, but he tastes each one of them. And the apple dumpling that's boiled, he says is more like an English pudding, which he likes. Yeah. Yeah. But it is interesting how it went from this boiled dessert to now it's a baked dessert. And I'm going right. to actually try to make this recipe and see what my illustrious taste testers have to say about this 18th century <laughs> apple dumpling recipe, and I will let you guys all know how that grows.
0: I'll take some pictures, and oh, please yeah. do. I'm really excited to see what you can do with the apple the oG apple dumpling. exactly. <laughs> yes. Wow. Uh, yeah, I learned a lot more than I anticipated <laughs> learning to right? Always fun. <laughs> Always a good yeah, time. Always. So we hope
1: that you enjoyed this three-part series. And if you haven't listened to the first two episodes, we really recommend that you go back and listen to them. Because we mentioned a lot of things in this episode that refer
0: back to some of the other episodes. What other episodes would you recommend? I think that it's worth going back to our OG Pi episode. It's episode number two. And actually, speaking of episode numbers, it just dawned on me, this is episode 50. Five zero. Thank you, folks, for being on this ride with us. We've been having such a fun, fantastic time with As We Eat, and we hope you are as well. Thank you to those of us who've been along with the ride from the very beginning, and uh, welcome to anyone who's new, just joining us. We have so much more in store for our As We Eat family, so we're excited for the next 50 and the next 50 beyond that, et cetera, et cetera. So thanks for playing along. <laughs> For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat. And please join our family recipes, traditions, and food lore community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.
1: And if you could take a few minutes away from that apple dumpling and rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, or Podchaser, or Spotify, we would really
0: appreciate it. This really helps us to get the show in front of more food enthusiasts like you. We also publish the As We Eat Journal on Substack. We would be so honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. We take tasty side trips through vintage recipes, community cookbooks, discovery explorations, the odd tangled taste buds, and travel stops and so much more. There are several subscription tiers that work for anyone's appetite. We're sure you're gonna find one that's perfect for you at asweeat.substack.com.
1: You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our curiosity-driven project serving up how food connects, defines, and inspires by blending a bit of research with a dash
0: of humor. (laughs) Papa, <laughs> papa,